If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. By God's grace this morning, we'll cover the first 21 chapters of the 21st chapter. First 21 verses of the 21st chapter. Um, I'm not going to cover 21 chapters this morning. Chapter 21 is a celebration of God keeping his promises, and we can rejoice in this together this morning as we see God keep his promises. And I just hope and pray that God uses his word to speak to you this morning. In whatever sense, you need to hear that, that God keeps his promises. Whatever promise it is that you need to rely on this morning, that you are struggling to hold on to, I don't know what it is, but God keeps his promises. This chapter, or at least these 21 verses, can be divided into two sections. The first seven verses is just that, God keeping his promise by, by bringing Isaac, the child of promise, into the world. He's finally here. And then in verses 8 through 21, we see the expulsion of Hagar and her son Ishmael. But these, these two sections really do go together. We could handle them separately because there's a lot here, but it's interesting as you read through this chapter, one, the first section really flows very quickly into the next. I, I don't know about you, but, but I found it as I was reading through this, studying through this, that there was only seven verses devoted to the fulfillment of the promise. And it seemed almost anticlimactic to me. Almost understated. Everything that's been happening since chapter 12, all the promises, and now is the fulfillment Everything's been leading to this one climactic event, and there's only seven verses. There's seven verses devoted to what happens to Ishmael and, and his mother Hagar in Beersheba at the end of the chapter. And so these seven verses devoted to the child of promise and the fulfillment of the promise seem understated, almost anticlimactic. Apparently, church, Isaac's birth is not the climactic event that everything has been building towards. There's something else. This is an important link, but yet just another link in the chain of God's plan for redeeming sinners like us. The climactic event is still yet to happen, and we see it pointed to in this passage. So follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures as I read the first 21 verses of Genesis chapter 21. This is the word of God. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time at which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and along with the child, and sent her away. 
And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Our God and King, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to gather with the saints this morning. We who have been redeemed by your gracious and sovereign hand, you've gathered us this morning corporately to worship you and to hear from you. We pray, Father, that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, that is not a cliche prayer. I ask in Jesus' name that you would speak through your word to every single person in this room. You know where they are. You know where they're struggling whether it be the struggle of living in a fallen world and disappointments and discouragements that happen seemingly um, without any kind of purpose or whether it's the struggle with sin. I pray, Father, that you'd speak to them clearly this morning from your word so that you might continue your work of sanctification forming us into the likeness of your son, Jesus, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to look first at the first seven verses where we see Isaac born. He's finally here, the child of promise that had been promised since chapter 12 began, has finally arrived. But the primary emphasis of these opening verses is God saying loud and clear, I have kept all the promises that I have made to you. Everything that I've said to you, I've done just as I have said it. Look at the first two verses. Moses repeats this three times, that, that, that what God was doing was exactly as he said it would happen. Verse 1 opens, the Lord visited Sarah, how? As he had said. And then the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And then verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. Everything that was happening was happening just as God had said. God is saying loudly, clearly, unequivocally here to Abraham, I have done just as I promised. That's what the children of Israel would have heard when Moses first delivered, first wrote these words in the book of Genesis. As they're wandering the the Sinai Peninsula, they would have heard, God did this just as he had promised. And that's what we hear today as well. Now these covenant promises to Abraham began all the way back in chapter 12. And I just want you to take a moment with me as we go back and we listen to these promises as God gave them to Abraham, which are now being fulfilled in chapter 21. Back in chapter 12, he said, And I will make you a great nation, Abraham, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are promises from God to Abraham. And then later in chapter 12, when they actually enter into Canaan, when they they get into the land... He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. That was a double promise 
to your offspring. He didn't have offspring. He was old. His wife was barren. She was old as well. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land that is before you. In the very next chapter, chapter 13, after Abraham and Lot separate, God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward, look southward, look eastward, look westward. In other words, look all around you, Abraham. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also will be counted. In other words, your offspring will be too numerous to count, Abraham. I know you can't see it, but this is the promise that I'm giving you. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Then he said, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for this is the land that I will give to you. And that land was not his at that point. It was inhabited by all kinds of people. But he says, I want you to walk the length and the breadth of it. All this land I will give to you, Abraham. A couple of chapters later in chapter 15, Abraham's faith was faltering. He realized he had no heir. He had, he had no one that was going to continue this promise. And so he decided out of a weak faith to see if he could help God out of this mess that God had get, gotten himself into by making this promise to him. And so he suggests that God would use his, his house servant, Eliezer, as an heir. God, why don't you make Eliezer an heir? That, that'll help you out of this fix that you're in. And God says to him, this man shall not be your heir. But your very own son shall be your heir. You don't get it, Abraham. Your, your faith is weak. You're not trusting me here. Don't, don't try to make up for my promise. I am going to give you a son. And then he, it says that the Lord brought him outside. And he says, look to the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. They're as numerous as, they will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will be numerous as the stars in the heavens. Too numerous to count, in other words. Just 10 years after the original promise, in chapter 16, now it's Sarah's turn to take matters into her own hands. Now she has, and she gives her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, to her husband, and they have a son by her. And we see how that ends up in the chapter that we're looking at this morning, chapter 21. But then in, in chapter 17, the first part of chapter 17, four, 14 years after the first promise, 14 years later, Abraham is now 99, or actually it's 14 years after the birth of Ishmael, the Lord reiterates his promises to Abraham again. Listen to what he says in chapter 17. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Your name now shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you that throughout ge their generations for an everlasting covenant to, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then later he also says of Sarah, as for Sarah, you shall no longer call her Sarai. Now she is to be known as Sarah, for I will bless her. And I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall, begin, she shall be, become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And of course, then we had, the, we had the picture of the covenant as God tells Abraham to go and get the animals and cut them in half and lay them down. And he passes through, God through the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, passes through the animals, saying in essence, in a covenantal way, to the, these animals, if I do not keep my promises to you. And then in chapter 18, just one year prior to the events of what we see in chapter 21, just one year ago, 
The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And now we're told in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and did to her just as he had promised. And she conceived and bore him a son at the time of which God had spoken to him. God did exactly as he promised. Everything that happened was exactly as he said it would happen. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see Abraham's faithful obedience, Abraham's response of faithful obedience. Verse 3, Abraham names his son Isaac, and he doesn't do this because he he comes up with a name. It is the name that the Lord had given to him back in chapter 17 when when the Lord told him, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And he's told him at that time, you shall call his name Isaac. And so here is Abraham just being faithful, just being obedient. He names his son Isaac. And then in verse 4, we also see his obedience as he obediently circumcised Isaac. Isaac was only eight days old. And, and, and circumcision was, was not something that was uh, relatively painless and clean as it is today. And yet, he does it. Why? We're told. As God had commanded him. So this reminds us that we have a responsibility when God keeps his promises to us. We too have a responsibility. He's the one who accomplishes it, but we participate with faithful obedience. Then in verse 5, we're told the second of three different times in the opening seven verses of chapter 21 that Abraham had a son in his old age. Three different times he refers to that. Moses is repeating that because he's trying to emphasize the miraculous nature of the birth of Isaac. This is something that would be impossible were it not by divine visitation that God is doing this. God is making it happen. It would be impossible otherwise. And then in verses 6 and 7, Sarah speaks. And as she does, she does a play on words with her son Isaac's name. Isaac's name means he laughs. And laughter has been a theme in this part of Genesis Back in chapter 17, verse 17, it was Abraham who laughed. Abraham laughed when God told him that his wife Sarah, at 89, would have a son. And when we went back through chapter 17, we learned that this was, this was a, a laughter somewhat of unbelief, but more just incredulous amazement. It, it, it was a laughter of, this isn't really possible, is it? This really can't happen, can it? It was the laughter of one who was struggling to believe what they were hearing. A son from Sarah? Sarah's barren. She's she's 89. This can't really happen, can it? So he laughed. Then in the next chapter, chapter 18, it was Sarah who laughed. She, She laughed under her breath. She laughed to herself when the divine visitor announced to them, that they were going to have a son through her in a year's time. And we learned at that point that this was um, the mocking laughter of unbelief. And we know that it was a negative um, laughter of unbelief because then the Lord called her on it. Why are you laughing? And she denied it. She said, I'm not laughing. She was laughing. And now in chapter 21, Abraham names their son He laughs. Isaac, it's a play on words. Then look what Sarah says in verses 6 and 7. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah, me, would nurse children again? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This isn't the laughter of incredulous amazement or the laughter of mockery and unbelief. This is the laughter of joyful celebration. This is the laughter of rejoicing. Church, this is the kind of laughter that we will have one day when we see our Savior face to face. The laughter of rejoicing. So Isaac's name here, he laughs, demonstrates that God has turned around the reproach that was on Abraham and Sarah. 
So the main lesson that we get from these opening seven verses is that God keeps his promises. And maybe you just need to hear that this morning. God keeps his promises. That when the Lord makes a promise, we can bank on it because it's as sure as done. Ligon Duncan says this, what God says is reality because God's word brings reality into being. And therefore his promises are inviolable. And it is impossible that he should not be faithful to that which he says, because what he says brings into being that which is not. We saw this in the creation account in Genesis 1, did we not? And the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. And the Lord said, let, the, let there be an expanse. And there was. He said, let the waters be gathered together. And there was. It was so. He said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation, and it was so. What God said, when God spoke, what he intended to happen, happened. It was a matter of reality. Charles Spurgeon said this about God keeping his promises. He says, just as the sun never grows weary of shining. Think about that. Sun never grows weary of shining. Just as a sun never grows weary of shining or a stream grow weary of flowing, so it is God's nature to keep his promises. He is a promise keeper. That's who he is. That's part of his identity. He is faithful. He is true. And when he makes a promise, he'll keep it. John Calvin wrote, God never feeds men on empty promises. He never gives us a, 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 an empty promise so that we will do something he wants us to do. He's not manipulative like that. He gives us truth, and his promises are trustworthy. When he, when he makes a promise to us, he will do it in his perfect timing. It's a, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. He will keep his promises. And when the fulfillment of his promises come, he turns our laughter of incredulous amazement Our laughter of unbelief, our laughter of mockery, he turns it into laughter of joyful celebration. He turns it into rejoicing. So what are the promises that God has made to us that we need to hold on to, that we need to believe and trust that that God will keep his promises? God's promises to us in his word are too numerous to count like the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. But all of them are money in the bank. We can count on them. They're going to happen. And we know that because of what Genesis 21 tells us. Trust him. Believe him. It may not happen today. It may not be tomorrow or the next day or the next year. But God, in accordance with his perfect time, he will bring it to pass. We remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 8, that to the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. It's going to happen. He will keep all of his promises in his perfect timing. And by the way, parenthetically, when we're talking here about God's promises, I'm primarily talking about the promises in God's word. I'm not talking about the promise that you think God made to you about a wife or a new job or a healthy report from the doctor or whatever the case may be. We have enough promises in God's word. We don't need to invent our own. I'm not saying that I don't think God doesn't make promises to us today. But I am saying That the promise that you think God made to you is simply not as reliable as all of the promises that we have in this book. The reality is what you think might have been God promising you a better job may have just been heartburn. (laughs) But the promises in this book are a sure thing. Money in the bank. They're going to happen. But the greatest promise that we have today is that when we die, those whom the Lord has saved by grace through faith in him 
will keep on living. Jesus said it to Martha when her brother Lazarus died. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. We're all going to die someday. When I die and I take my last breath, I will take my last breath believing that God made a promise to me. That this life is not all that there is. That there's life after it. I will take that last breath believing that there is a resurrection from the dead. And that the grave that couldn't hold his son Jesus, it won't hold me either. I'll take that last breath believing a promise that he made to me that by faith in his son, my sins were paid for at the cross of Calvary. And so I, I, I will believe the promise that I won't have to pay for those sins again. They've already been paid for. Believe a promise that my faith on that day will be made sight. And I will see my Redeemer face to face forever. And we know that that promise will be fulfilled. That it's money in the bank. That it is a sure thing. Because the God who made that promise to you and I also made this promise. That Abraham and Sarah would have a son And he kept that promise just as he will with us. It is a sure thing. Church, God keeps his promises. But the joy of Isaac's birth doesn't last for long. For now we come to the second part of this passage, verses 8 through 21, the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. They get expelled from Abraham's household. And I want to split this up into uh, kind of two parts The first, verses 8 through 14, the casting out of Ishmael, and then the rest of the passage, the caring for Ishmael. So first of all, let's look at the casting out of Ishmael. begins in verse 8. We're told that the child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham had a feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, they weaned children from their mother's milk later than we do today, according to Jewish tradition at that time, according to that culture. He was probably two or three years old by the time he was weaned. And so Abraham holds this feast for him. And it's at this feast that Sarah sees something. Look at verse 9. saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So we're introduced again to Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, and her son Ishmael. We were first introduced to them in chapter 16. You remember the story. Sarah's faith was failing, was faltering, and she knew that there was this promise that God was going to bring his promise through Abraham, and and that through that promise, it was going to be a blessing to the nations. And she, like Abraham before, wanted to help God out of this fix that he had put himself into by making this promise. And so she tells Abraham, take my handmaiden, Hagar, this Egyptian servant of mine, And you guys have a kid. And so she does, and he does, and she gets pregnant. But then Hagar looks with contempt on Sarah because she's barren. She can't have kids. Now she thinks that she is somewhat of a second class, that Sarah is a second class wife in Abraham's household. And so she looks with contempt on Sarah. So now there's discord in the family. Sarah doesn't like it, and she treats Hagar harshly, and as a result of her jealousy, Hagar responds to this by fleeing. She runs away into the wilderness, and we have that tender scene at the end of chapter 16 where God meets with Hagar in the wilderness and consoles her and helps her and promises her that he was going to bring a multitude of offspring through her son Ishmael. And so she returns to Abraham, back to the household, and she has her son Ishmael. And for a time, there is peace in the household. But now that peace has been replaced by discord once again. 
because Sarah sees something. She sees the son of Hagar, who's Ishmael. This is Ishmael here, and I think it's very interesting that Moses never names him in this entire chapter that's about Ishmael and Isaac. He never calls him by name, but that's who he is. He's the son of Hagar. Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at this feast, commemorating the weaning of her son, Isaac. So here we see this theme of laughing again. But this is not the laughing of rejoicing that we saw in the first part of the chapter. Instead, this this is a laughing of mockery. This is a laughing of ridicule, making fun of someone. And And we know this partly because of Sarah's response, but also because of what Paul, the Apostle Paul, will later tell us in Galatians chapter 4 when he's exegeting Genesis chapter 20. We'll look at that just a bit later. But in verse 29 of Galatians 4, he says this, He who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. And so, according to Paul, this was a persecuting laughter, a mocking, a, a ridiculing laughter. We don't know exactly what form that took or, or what was happening there. Maybe he was just making fun of him for being weaned at the age that he was. But it's not hard to understand why this would happen if we think about the timing here. Ishmael was a teenage boy. He was 14 years old when Isaac was born. And if Isaac was weaned when he was two or three, that means that Ishmael now is 16 or 17 years old. And up to this point in his life, he had confidence that he was the heir. He had confidence that the inheritance from Abraham, which was great and significant, was going to be his. I mean, there had been promise of another child, but I mean, his dad was 99. His, his, his stepmom was 89. And there had been no kid for 14 years. But when Sarah becomes pregnant at 89, everything changes for Ishmael. The prospect of his inheritance is now fading fast. And so at this feast, honoring the weaning of young Isaac, he ridicules him, he laughs at him, mocks him, and as Paul will later say, persecutes him. Sarah, the mom, sees this. Obviously, she doesn't like this, and so she tells Abraham to get rid of them. Verse 10, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So once again, Sarah is riddled with jealousy. She's jealous of Ishmael, jealous of Hagar and her position, and once again treats her with just disdain. I mean, you can hear the disdain dripping in the voice of Sarah as she refers to Hagar as this slave woman. And she's also jealous for her son because she doesn't want her son Isaac to share his inheritance with any slave woman's son. And so out of jealousy, out of derision, She tells Abraham, they got to go. Get rid of them. Literally cast them out of the household. And obviously this makes Abraham very sad. We see in verse 11 that this was very displeasing to him. That word means distressing and sad. He loved Ishmael. Ishmael was his firstborn son. He had a deep and abiding love for his son Ishmael. Even if it was through the Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar. Remember what when God told him in chapter 17, you're going to have a son through Sarah. He's going to be the child of promise. What did, what did Abraham say? Oh, that Ishmael may live before you, Lord. In other words, can't you take him? Can't you take Ishmael? He loved his son Ishmael. He loved this boy And upon hearing his wife demanding that they have got to be cast out of the household, they need to be expelled, he is very distressed and sad. The likelihood is that he will never see his son again. And so obviously he is distressed by this. And God is gracious and compassionate. He knows this. He knows that Abraham loves his son. And so we see this tender promise from God about Ishmael to Abraham. He says, I'm going to take care of your son. Look at verses 12 and 13. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of the slave woman. 
Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I know this is hard for you, and I, don't, I, I know you don't understand this, but I need you to do what Sarah is telling you to do. Even though she's saying it out of jealousy and derision and her motives aren't great, Abraham, the reality is what she's telling you to do is in fact my plan. It's my plan. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's the child of promise, not Ishmael. But because Ishmael is your son, he's your offspring, I'm going to take care of him. And I'm going to make him into a great nation as well. Just not the nation that I've been promising to you. Because that nation is going to come through Isaac. And so though it is supremely, understandably difficult for Abraham, he does what God says. He faithfully obeys. He listens to the voice of his wife Sarah and he expels Ishmael and his mother. Look at Abraham's immediate obedience, though difficult, in verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. John Calvin writes about this, about Abraham's immediate obedience here in this incredibly difficult, emotionally impossible situation that he's in. He says this, it is, true, it, is, it is the true test of faith and piety when the faithful are compelled to, de, to deny themselves in such a way that they even submit the affections of their human nature to God's will, even though such affections are neither evil nor vicious in themselves. There was nothing wrong with Abraham's love of his son. It was perfectly natural and right and good for him to love his son Ishmael and be devoted to him and not want to get rid of him and yet just as Jesus prayed not as I will but your will be done this is what you want me to do and, and, and church we're beginning to see some of the fruit of this long and wearying faith journey that Abraham has been on we've seen him faltering we've seen him wavering but now we're beginning to see some of the fruit of that. And that fruit will come to full blossom in the very next chapter. As God then tells him to take his one and only son, Isaac, and offer him on top of Mount Moriah. We're beginning to see some of the fruit of his life. So why did Ishmael and Hagar have to be expelled after all? Why did this need to happen? What was the reason for this? We've already noted some of the reason. One was the pride of Ishmael. that He really wanted that inheritance so much that he was willing to mock his half-brother Isaac at his birth, realizing that his inheritance was now slipping away. He wanted that, and if he had remained, there's a good chance he would have vied for that. Also, because of the jealousy of Sarah. We've also already seen that, but what we haven't noted is that this one of the reasons why Ishmael and Hagar had to be expelled could have been because of the faltering faith of Abraham that has been chronicled so well for us in the last few chapters and that we've already mentioned. We've seen his faith falter many times. The very existence of Ishmael is a representation, a demonstration of his faltering faith as he listens to the voice of his wife Sarah and he decides to take matters into his own hands and have a son through Hagar instead of waiting on God. His faith was faltering. He wasn't believing God. Then, then even after that, the Lord says, no, listen, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, I'm not really sure you can do that. I already got a son. Use him. Let him be the child of promise. He wasn't believing God. His faith was faltering. Not to mention the very previous, the, the, the previous chapter that we just went through in chapter 20, 
when he has this, this intercourse with Abimelech, the Philistine king, Abraham does, and he lies to Abimelech about Sarah being his sister. That was just a year prior. Presumably within that year, Sarah was pregnant with Isaac, and yet he lies because he doesn't trust God. He's not believing God. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that Abraham's faith might not be ready for that grand test of faith that is coming in chapter 22. And so God removes Ishmael from the picture. He's probably thinking, maybe I can hang on to Ishmael just in case. I mean, Isaac has survived the first two or three years, and he's been weaned, but he's got a long way to go before he can have offspring, and the, and the promise can continue through him. So Ishmael's already got a 14-year head start. Why don't we just hang on to him? And God says no. Ligon Duncan writes this, God was separating Abraham from Ishmael so that Abraham would continue to have trust in him. Because that test of faith in Genesis 22 is coming. But ultimately, the most fundamental reason, the most basic reason for Ishmael and Hagar to be expelled is not because of the pride of Ishmael or the jealousy of Sarah or even because of the faltering faith of Abraham, but simply because this was God's plan. This was God working out his plan. He's behind the scene, pulling the strings, working out his intended plan of redeeming sinners like us. And this was just part of the plan. God was fulfilling his plan and his fulfillment here was happening through the birth of Isaac. He was the child of promise, not Ishmael. And so Ishmael and his mother had to go. And I think there's a lesson for us here. And we'll get to the larger lesson in just a moment, but there, there is a little bit of a sub-message here, and that is that God sometimes does this in our lives. He moves us away, or he moves other people away from us, and we don't understand why. We don't know why he's doing that. We don't understand the reason, but we can know, we can be assured that there's always a divine plan at work. Perhaps part of what God is doing or, or part of what was at play, like in the story with Ishmael and Hagar, part of the reason why it had to happen was some of the bad behavior of them. And so maybe God sometimes does this, moves us away or moves other people away from us because of bad behavior on our part or their part or whatever or both. But underneath it all is a sovereign and good God who is working out his plan, just as he was with Isaac and Ishmael. We don't always know what that plan is and why he's doing this. Maybe it's to grow our faith in him. Maybe he's using these circumstances as a means by which he will transform us to look more like Jesus. He's forming us into the likeness of Christ through these circumstances. Maybe it's to confront sin in us or to confront sin in them or both. Maybe it's to remove temptation from us or whatever the reason, we simply don't know, but he does. And we can always be assured that he's working out his plan and it is good. He's working behind the scenes providentially to accomplish his sovereign will for us. And according to Romans 8.28, it is for our good and for his glory. And so our place in that is simply to trust him, to trust him that he's working, even if we don't know the reason. So now we come to the second part of the second section of this, this part about expelling Hagar and Ishmael. We covered the casting out of Ishmael. Now let's cover the caring for Ishmael. Verses 15 through 21. Verse 15 it says, when the water in the skin was gone, this is the water in the skin that Abraham had given to Hagar. When it was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. So they've got no more water. They're in the middle of the desert. She puts Ishmael under a bush, presumably to die. Verse 16. Then Hagar goes and sits down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. 
For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So she leaves her son under a bush, presumably to die. Then she goes off a good ways, as far as an arrow would shoot, because she does not want to hear the suffering of her son. She doesn't want to be exposed to that. She wants to be out of earshot of that. But then, look what happens. Verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy. Not Hagar, but the boy. So the boy's weeping as well, not just Hagar. The boy is weeping as well, maybe crying out for help. We don't know. But his mom can't hear him. She refused to hear the suffering of her son. So she's out of earshot, but thankfully, he's not out of earshot of the Lord. The Lord hears his cries. And through the angel speaks to Hagar. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So God takes care of Ishmael, provides a well. The well had always been there. She was blinded to it in her grief. Now he makes it to where she can see it. And we're told that they live in the wilderness, and he becomes skilled with a bow. He becomes a great nation. And the takeaway from these closing verses here is that this is a display of God's common grace. Ishmael was not the child of promise. He was not the one that God was going to work his plan of redemption through. It's a side story. We'll see him again. We'll see his offspring again. But he was not the child of promise. And yet God is kind and gracious to him. He didn't do anything to deserve this, just as we don't do anything to deserve this. Yet God was gracious to him. We're reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 45, when he says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he makes it to rain, life-giving rain, crop-producing rain on both the just and the unjust. And so we see this display of common grace for even those who are not his children. One of the things that Moses is drawing our attention to in chapter 21, and especially in these closing verses, is the distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. And this is really an overarching takeaway from our entire passage this morning. This this growing distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. The the distinction began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After the fall, God cursed the serpent and he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we've talked about this before, but now we see that Isaac is the child, is, is, is from the seed of the woman and Ishmael is from the seed of the serpent. And there is most definitely enmity between them. And we'll continue to see this throughout the Genesis narrative. This distinction is further clarified in the very chapter that we're looking at this morning. As we're told that Isaac is the child of promise. He's the one. He is the chosen child. Ishmael is not. So what did Isaac do to be the child of promise? Nothing. It was according to God's sovereign choice of him. In fact, if we go to Romans chapter 9, you can look at this up, on, this up on your own time. As God is providing, as Paul is providing a defense for the Lord in his unconditional election, he uses the two children of Abraham as an example of that. And then he'll use the two children of Isaac as well. And we'll see that in just a few chapters. So Isaac is the child of promise. The promise of Abraham being a blessing to all nations. That promise was going to come through Isaac and it was not going to come through Ishmael. 
What did Ishmael do to deserve that? Nothing. It was according to God's sovereign will. Ishmael is going to be the father of a nation as well. It's just not going to be the nation through which God would bring his son and through which he would work out his plan of redemption. The distinction between these boys is, is continued throughout much of the Old Testament as we see fierce battles waged between the Israelites and the Ishmaelites. And we should remember that the, that the word Israel is what Isaac's son Jacob's name is turned into after Isaac gives his blessing to his son Jacob. From then on, Jacob is referred to as Israel. We see these battles between Israel, the children of the promise, and Ishmaelites throughout much of the Old Testament. But this distinction is not relegated to the Old Testament because we also see it in the New. Turn, turn in your scriptures to Galatians chapter 4. I want to close with this. Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 21, the setting is this. The gospel has come to the churches of Galatia, the, the land of Galatia. The gospel has arrived, and God is using the gospel to save people. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and they're gathering in churches, but then there's infiltrators that are coming in as well. These people called Judaizers, these, these Jews that are coming from Jerusalem, and they're saying, okay, you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's fine. You believe the gospel, but you also need to follow all the rules and all the customs of the Jews. You need to add to the gospel. You need to do more than that. You need to be circumcised and do all this other stuff. And Paul says that is a false gospel. This, this, this gospel that they're giving you is no gospel at all. It is not good news. In fact, he says, let them be accursed for giving you a gospel that is not the gospel that we preach to you. It is, it is heresy. But listen to how he exhorts them in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And now he gives them this story from Genesis. And so he uses the words of Genesis. He calls the words of Genesis that Moses writes the law. We don't typically think of Genesis as the law, but that's what Paul refers to it as. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free, and she is our mother. In other words, Paul says that, that Hagar in that story refers to present-day Judaism, locked in the law, locked in legalism, requiring one to follow all of the law in order to be saved. But Isaac is from the free woman, Paul says. And she, Sarah, corresponds with the heavenly Jerusalem. And not the law of works, but the law of grace. And Paul tells the Galatians, she is our mother. Referring to the, to the believers there in Galatians, she's our mother. Sarah is our mother. We're the children of promise, like Isaac. And then he continues in verse 27. For it is written... Rejoice, O barren one, that's Sarah, Re rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You guys in Galatia, you, you believers in Christ, you too, you are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And so this persecution, this mockery, this ridicule of those who are children of the promise, those who are of faith, continues even today. Verse 30, but what does Scripture say, Paul asks. And I think that's important how he puts that. He doesn't say, what does Sarah say? And yet, these will be Sarah's words. 
He doesn't say, what does Sarah say? He says, what does the scripture say? What does God say in his word? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Direct quote. Direct quote from Genesis 21, verse 10. It's, the, it's from the mouth of Sarah, and yet God is saying what she's saying, though she's saying it from wrong motives, is what I'm saying. Cast him out. For the son of the slave woman will not inherit what the, what the son of the, of the free woman will. And then he says in verse 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, we're children of the free woman. And so when we read Genesis chapter 21 and we see this distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. It's okay for us to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture because that's what Paul is doing here. He's exegeting Genesis chapter 21. And he says that part of what we should see in Genesis chapter 21 is that we who have been rescued from the judgment of sin, by the grace of God, we are children of the promise. The promise is ours. And that promise is not ours by anything that we have done, by anything deserving in us. That promise is ours simply by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the very next verse in Galatians, in this Galatians passage, is Galatians 5 verse 1, which really goes at the end of chapter 4, when he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we who've been saved by God's grace from what we deserve, let us not trade that in for a yoke of slavery because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Three quick words of application here. Believe, obey, and rejoice. First of all, believe. Believe that God will keep his promises. And what he said will happen. Now for some here, that may be believing the gospel for the first time. Put in your hope, not in your ability to make yourself acceptable to God, but put in your hope for that in Christ alone, in his finished work on the cross as your only and sufficient hope for forgiveness and eternal life. But for others here, this means that when it gets, thank you for that bug, a heart attack there. For others, when it gets hard, and sometimes it gets hard, when we get weary, when we get tired on this faith journey that we're on, when we feel like giving up, when we're tempted to doubt, let's return to this scene and see the child of promise 25 years later, seemingly hopeless. And there he is, the child of promise. God will keep his promises. Hold on to that. Believe that. Don't quit. One of those promises, there are a myriad of them, one of those promises is Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who started this work of transformation and he's using the circumstances, sometimes the very hard circumstances of life, to bring about that transformation, forming you into the likeness of Christ, he who started it, he's not going to stop. He's not going to give up. He's not going to say, this one's too hard. So don't you give up. Persevere. Hang in there. Hold on to his hand. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's just one in church, there are numerous, countless promises for us to hold on to. He will keep each and every one of them. Believe that. Secondly, obey, just like Abraham did. He obediently named his son Isaac. He obediently took him and had him circumcised at eight days old, just as God had commanded him. And he obediently, though it was probably the hardest thing to do in his life up to this point, before we get to the next chapter, he did what God said, and he sent his son away. What is it that God is asking of you this morning? No matter the cost, obey.
Just trust him. No greater way of demonstrating your faith and your trust in him than obeying him. Believe his word and step out in obedience, whatever it is. And then lastly, rejoice. Rejoice in the sovereign grace that he has shown you in making you a child of promise. We don't see this laughter of joyful celebration until the child is born. But church, because we know that God is a God who keeps his promises, we don't have to wait until we see Jesus face to face. We've got the promises, and we know that they are sure. We know that they are money in the bank. And so everything that is promised to us, we know will happen, and so we can rejoice today. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait until our faith is made sight. And so let us, as a community of believers, let us laugh with a joyful celebration. Let us have the laughter of rejoicing because he has already done it. Let's pray.